0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper.
1: And I'm Alexia the Greek. Very excited to have political theorist, assistant professor of government at Smith College, Erin Pineda here to discuss her new book. Beautiful book, by the way, Seeing Like an Activist, Civil Disobedience and the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, So welcome, Erin.
2: Thank you so much uh, to you both for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: It's going to be a lot of fun. I feel like this is following in the footsteps of some other episodes we had. We had uh, Mina Christopher Murthy on to talk about some good civil rights political theory. So I guess to get us started here, maybe for those that don't know the reference, uh, seeing like an activist is kind of referencing seeing like a state. And maybe to kind of get things going, uh, give a little background on, on that uh, title and text so we can show how you're using it.
2: Uh, thanks for that question. Um, and I should say at the outset that uh, Jim Scott, author of Seeing Like a State, was an advisor of mine. So the title is um, both a, a reference that I wanted to use in a sort of conceptual frame that I wanted to develop, but also a bit of an homage. Awesome. Um, so this is
0: like Vader slaying Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, the the, <laughs> the, the Padawan has become the master.
2: <laughs> I doubt he would see it that way, but, but let's go with it since he's not here.
0: Anyway, I interrupted. Um,
2: you. <laughs> no, that's fine. It was a it was a good joke to start us off. So, um, so for those who don't know, uh, James Scott's Seeing Like a State is um, really an argument about um, these grand, what he calls high modernist, big state building projects, mainly through the twentieth century. Um, big ambitious plans to reorder social and political life. Um, through mapping, through the building of cities, through the planning of forests, all different kinds of things that he looks at. Um, and his claim there is that what this actually requires um, under the guise of simply gathering data and information about what people are already like and already doing, um, it it actually ends up being that the state's way of gathering and ordering this data actually fundamentally changes the, um, the social order that they're trying to capture um, and and also produces a very peculiar and particular way of seeing, seeing citizens and their relationships to each other and the ways that they move through space. And so in some ways, you know, my use of this um, or my reference to this phrase, seeing like a state, um, which I um, invert in some ways into seeing like an activist, but also um, draw on a little bit to develop a notion of what it means to see like a white state um, in some ways my use is is fairly distant from Scott's, and that I'm not really worried about state planning or map making <laughs> or things of that order or, or these kind of high modernist projects um, but what I did want to pick up on is the ways that I saw political philosophers adopting something like the vantage point um, of the state's concern for its own stability um, and so I you know, again, less concerned with state planners and more concerned with what it is that academic philosophers do when they take on as their own the ends of maintaining um, the constitutional or, or other kinds of state systems that are already in place, um, which is part of what I think is going on in the literature on civil disobedience. Right. And
1: it seems like it's related to popular discourse today. And, you know, we- Political theorists who like to think that there is an effect on actual uh, behavior and ideological subject formation, right? Uh, so maybe why is why is John Rawls the problem uh, <laughs> instead, right? Uh, why, why is it that in the popular discourse um, it seems like the civil rights movement is uh, not only seen as the kind of um, exemplary example historically of this of civil disobedience? but uh but also seems to be construed in a particular liberal framework um, what, why do, do, does that happen and um, and why is that perhaps a problem?
2: yeah, so I, I think um there there are a few different answers to that question, um, depending on whether we're talking at the sort of the level of popular discourse or the the level of academic philosophizing but what I noted and what I try to argue in part in the book is that to some extent, those two things have been aligned through the second half of the 20th century in that, you know, it's certainly not the case that that John Rawls' theory of civil disobedience circulates very widely outside the academy. Um, and yet some of the, the contours of how he sees the concept and how he uh, develops it as tied through a a particular way of thinking about the civil rights example felt very familiar to me from um, just sort of taking note and taking stock of popular discourse around civil disobedience in in the contemporary moment. So the way that the U.S. press tends to react to things like the movement for black lives um, or, or other fairly large scale instances of civil disobedience. Um, so to some extent, and kind of strangely, the, the two the two discourses are tied. Um, and so on the philosophy side, I think that part of what happened is that John Rawls, um, as well as others, Michael Walzer, Hugo Beto, folks that I talk about in the book, um, and that were um, within particular orbits of Anglo-American philosophy in the 60s and 70s, um, They were engaged in various kinds of projects to think about political obligation, the question of when it is that citizens have an obligation to obey the law and why, what kinds of reasoning backs up that kind of obligation. Um, They were invested in thinking about this in the moment when the civil rights movement was underway. Um, And the movement became a key example for them to think through to measure their theories against in some way. And also I think politically a number of them as philosophers had, uh, had an interest in defending the movement from various kinds of conservative critics who were intent to argue. Um, and I think, you know, fit what a line of argument that would be familiar to many of us that any kind of, um, any kind of mass protest and particularly mass protest that violates the law or is evasive of arrest, um, is is basically the same thing as destruction of the state, or the same as um, mass criminality, and and has no place in in what they co- what they conceived of as a liberal democratic society. Um, and, and so, you know, they they really did, I think, think through what they were arguing about civil disobedience as a way of trying to defend the civil rights movement in that way. Of course, what I end up arguing is that. Their defense turns out to be a really narrow one and and one that's actually quite good for disciplinary purposes. Um, it doesn't actually provide that robust of a defense of mass protest.
1: Right. And, and you know, we'll get to this more, but it also... Uh, I think you argue, misunderstands the actual nature of uh, the civil rights movement and a lot of the, the thinking and theorizing done by, by activists uh, quite intentionally, right? And so I, I think that's an important thing because, I, I, you know, you note that even though civil disobedience conceptually is, is always, you know, scholars can test everything, right? But it's basically been accepted in certain terms um, that are abstract and then seem to be abstractly applied to history, thereby, you know, taking the civil rights movement and turning it into something that fits that abstraction, rather than understanding on its own terms, all of the things that happened, right? Uh, so I think that that seems like an important piece as well, right?
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. That's really nicely put. Um, in that, you know, it's it's both. It, it's it's kind of an awkward thing, right? Because I, I think they it would be fair to say that they were fairly invested in the example of the civil rights movement and in the movement as a as a as a good for U.S. society. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, the way that they end up thinking about the movement really does treat it more like as a, a sort of proof of concept or an object lesson um, to show the purchase of the theories. So in some ways, they they sort of slot it into a theory that that already has some some major architecture <laughs> completed. Um, and and just sort of tweak it a little bit to make it fit. Um, and don't seem to stop to ask whether, uh whether the ways that they are posing questions and the answers they are uh devising actually do uh, actually are adequate abstractions from or adequate renderings of what civil rights movement activists themselves were up, were up to and um the right. ways that they were talking and thinking they they seem to sort of assume that it does that those two things fit together
0: yeah the, could we go ahead ran yeah this gets into i mean one of the the kind of like complications of your uh your your um schema here is uh, uh, your phrase "seeing like a white state," um, and you know you talk about uh, Gunnar Myrdal. Is it like a Swedish guy? I think right. Um, yeah, that's right. And and wrote this just preposterously credulous account of you know the 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 like the the white population of the United States. You know, thinking that boy once once people just come to understand how bad it is being a black person in the South you know, this Jim Crow stuff, this Jim Crow business, that'll, that'll be the end of that. You know, we just have to like, you know, uh, educate people and raise them up. And it speaks to just a uh, 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 enormous blind spot, right? In the sort of liberal tradition that you're talking about, the idea that in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, you know, or in the 1950s, that you could think of the United States and where like basically a third of the country is living, you know, under this absolutely ruthless, terroristic, racial caste system in which, you know, like a pretty substantial portion of the population, what, like some 40% maybe at the time, you know, effectively have no civil rights at all and are, and are constantly uh, just like living on the threat of brutal, merciless violence. And, you know, that's like the lived experience of of people. It's like living in like one of the worst, like a, like probably worse than the Soviet Union, uh, uh, in the similar time period, you know, where like not just, you don't get to vote for, you know, you, whoever runs the country, but that like, you can't get a job if you, if you, uh, if you try to go to school, you know, if you try to go to university, you'll be like mercilessly dismembered and like burned alive, you know, um, can you speak to this, like, like how that that like I don't know the 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 blinders that people apparently uh, had on kind of influenced the 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 tradition of this like type of thinking?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that that is one of the really striking things is that it you know in encountering this um, the this part of political philosophy, this, this area of work, um, is that, you know, if you know anything about the context of the racial order of the 20th century United States up, up through the 1960s and and beyond, um, it just sort of, uh, it's, it's incredible to, to, to write about it then like, um, it's an unproblematic liberal democracy in some ways, but that is, that seems to be, um, framework that was adopted. And I think that happened for, for various reasons, which, which maybe I'll swing back to, but in terms of what the, how the, the view kind of unfolds is that, um, you know, as they, as they think about civil disobedience from this perspective of, uh, a kind of relatively rare exception to an otherwise binding rule, binding, uh, principle that we have to obey the law. Um, that, that sort of statement is, um, Constrained within the framework of we have this obligation because we live in a certain type of society, and that type of society is a relatively good, relatively stable liberal democracy and to sort of pull off that that perspective um, while also taking stock of a movement that is combating um, just incredible racial terror and and forms of racial domination that are pervasive across areas of life and society. Um, they have to position racial injustice as um, as basically um, in, in some ways only entailing segregation as a kind of um, isolated um, as only entailing segregation, but I guess even more limited than segregation was. so relatively isolated and anomalous, um, formal in terms, it's about formal exclusions, um, explicit laws that that bar people from from entering certain kinds of public spaces or private spaces. Um, and it isolated and anomalous in the the additional sense that they don't take it to be something that really um, harmed or overall af- affected the overall legitimacy or integrity of the constitutional order as they saw it in the U.S. So they they took it to be a a grievous wrong that a huge. Racialized portion of the population was excluded in these ways. Um, that was absolutely a manifest, terrible injustice to all of them, um, and so that that seriousness, the gravity of the problem, was what justified breaking the law on mass in this way. Um, but they they didn't imagine it to be systemic enough to more fundamentally question the frameworks of political obligation. Um, that they were building at the same time and and the ideas they had about what defined a democratic constitutional order, um, such as the one in the United States as as they saw it. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's the sort of bind it, you know, Jim Crow becomes a kind of legal order for exclusion. Um, and beyond that, it becomes the kind of problem that can be addressed using only the resources, the the legal, constitutional, and normative resources that are already kind of built in, baked into the U.S.'s constitutional culture, political culture, um, and political structure. And so nothing nothing novel is needed. There's no revolutionary upheaval that's needed, and there are really no new new ideas even needed. Um, At some... um, Early on, John Rawls, in his lecture notes, he he sort of... um, closely echoes something that Gunnar Myrdal says, which is to basically think about segregation as, as an almost technical problem. We have the means to solve it. We just need to, um, or we have the the main ideas and ideals we need to solve it. We just need to get the means right. We just need to do the adjusting. And he says that there's essentially nothing, nothing interesting philosophically that we can say about racial domination because it is that kind of technical problem. Um, and it's that framework, that view, um, th- that I think is both pervasive and also is what enables um, political theorists to divide the world into liberal democracies and everywhere else and say that within liberal democracies, this is a specific kind of legal politi- legal and political context in which these are the rules of the game. And everywhere else, well, you know, that's a different conversation, essentially. Um, so in that way, sociologically and historically, the civil rights movement is analyzed in a way that's totally cut off from the other movements around the world that are happening at the same time. And that in fact, these activists are in very close touch with um, primarily anti-colonial movements.
1: Right. And I think that's really important for us to, to get to. Um, but I, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about. I mean, there, there's a kind of irony that um, the disciplining of uh, radicals and of uh, resistance is is done by taking the success of civil rights movement activists who specifically rejected the analysis and framing of these political theorists, and precisely because they understood that white supremacy was at the core and is at the core uh, of of this nation that helped them develop the strategies, tactics, and and ways of action that were actually successful, right? So there's a kind of irony there. But I think that lesson is something we need to learn for today. So maybe you can talk about now, instead of seeing like a a white state, what did, you know, the activists, uh, how did they see uh, the forms of oppression that were manifest um, in a way that allowed them to um, strategize differently than maybe these theorists thought?
2: Yeah, so... um I think that the question has um has multiple <laughs> multiple styles of answers, multiple ways of, of addressing it. Um so one thing that I think is true is um by by placing uh, a a huge networked uh pervasive system of of not just, you know, what we would think of as Racial injustice, or something, but really racial domination—a um, system of manifest fear and violence—that really encompasses the whole. Um, because that was central for them, the the question that they that they asked, the thing that they needed from mass protest and, and mass activism was different. So instead of uh, protesting a set of uh, discrete laws that that you need to convince somebody else to change, they much more often spoke in fairly sweeping terms about the need to transform and produce a wholly new kind of society, um, which is just an, a totally different framework for thinking about what they're doing and and for asking what it is that something like civil disobedience as a way of acting, um, what, what it can possibly provide. Um, and so... You know, where we get uh, a kind of familiar model of civil disobedience as a kind of limited petition, you, you're, you know, protesting a specific law to either convince um, agents of the state to make changes or to convince other citizens that that you have a, a serious claim that needs to be addressed um, and thereby, you know, that perhaps fellow citizens are either going to get on board or they're going to vote differently, um, that somehow that's going to be channeled back through the system as we have it. Um, instead, this I see this set of activists as as really asking, really grappling with the problem. How do you take groups of people who have been habituated under various kinds of violent domination, both the dominated and those in in a position to either sort of blissfully go about their lives or or actively to oppress others? How do you take those kinds of people um, and imagine? What kinds of changes they need to make in themselves and in their relations to each other so that they could potentially go about the work of building a, a totally new kind of society, a totally new kind of order. And so, I, I mean, that sounds maybe grandiose, but I think the, the ambitions were really, really large here um, to, to really, you know, as I say in the book, to build a new world. And so that was the kind of um, that was the kind of thinking they did about what civil disobedience could do. So um, I make a, a, a set of arguments about how they thought about the kinds of internal changes or changes within the self that civil disobedience could enable um, amongst those who have uh, been habituated to being racially dominated. So amongst Black Americans, the the kinds of the kind of way that it could be a vehicle for self liberation. Um, but then also the the ways that they thought about how it could be used as a tool to um, either disrupt the comfort of of white Americans who might not be used to thinking about themselves as particularly attached to sites of racial domination, um, innocent of them, um, to make them uh, reconsider their own commitments, what kinds of people they want to be, um, by disrupting various kinds of social order. Um, so. I think they really constructed it as both a, and what I call an inward facing tool and an outward facing tool, one that's supposed to work on the self and then one, one that's also supposed to work on others.
1: It's pretty cool because it, it shows how much more complex the uh, ontology and uh, anthropology of the activists were compared to the political theorists uh, that were liberal. For example, the idea that, you know, you can just persuade because you were talking and this is in contrast to kind of the persuasive model where civil disobedience is merely a way of like making people white people aware of a problem and and then they're educated and their rational mind processes it and then like they petition their government and the government processes that petition and then they just change things and and this is a very simple model of the human i would suggest first of all <laughs> um, right but so the, the inward um Directed understanding that first of all, it's going to take a lot more than that, and so we have to kind of habituate uh, ourselves and mobilize and and have a certain kind of agency that then produces uh, the kind of direct action, the kind of pressure, the kind of forcing the better argument, as you write about on on those uh, you know maybe let's say the white moderates who uh, instead of just being persuaded through reason. Are, are instead acted upon differently and, and that this is a better mechanism for, for, for change and for transformation. Um, m- maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the inward and the outward again and, and how um, some of these tactics fit in to, to those sides of it.
2: Yeah. So um, early earlier in the book, I, I focused more on the inward face. Um, and and I, I do this by looking at um, how activists talked about um, accepting legal punishment, going to jail as, as a part of protest, which is um, almost always linked as a necessary part of civil disobedience. So it's not just that you break the law. It's that you're willing to be arrested. You're willing to serve some kind of jail sentence. Um, and the the typical explanation that's given for why you do that is um, either it, it's a way of making clear that you're sincere um, because you're willing to pay some kind of cost in a very public way or um, or And or um, you're doing it because you want to find a way of communicating to others um, that you are not contesting the rule of law as such, um, the social order in whole. Um, you're not you're not questioning the idea of law or that you ought to be bound by law. Um, so it, it's a kind of good faith, um, a demonstration of good faith and demonstration of commitment to most of the, most of the social order, just not some parts of it that you find to be unjust. Um, and what I find is that in fact, black activists, um, had a different way of talking about going to jail, which, um, had much more to do with, um, on the one hand, amplifying, um, uh, multiplying the, the spaces that were, uh, their sites of protest, so not just at the Woolworths at the lunch counter, um, but the way that the courtroom in the jail cell could also become sites of protest. If you um, if you made them that way by virtue of you being dragged through them, you could stage protests in various ways. Um, you could use it to build solidarity. But also given you know what I said earlier about how much how much difference it makes to have the, these accounts start not with um, Some imagination of a of a mostly just liberal democratic society, but with the realities of a pervasive system of racial terror, Um, because they started with that. The other thing that was very clear to them, both just experientially for many of them, but also as they talked and thought about ethics and tactics was that the, the courtroom and the jail cell were linked as, as sort of central institutional pieces of what Jim Crow violence really was. Yeah. It was um, not purely extra legal, but a, a system of violence that linked what we might think of as vigilantism all the way through um, the, the kind of formal institutions of law and order. Um, and so for them to willingly go to jail, it was often a way of signaling that they could not be held in fear by the system. And and the best way of demonstrating that was to willingly go to the, the site that, that was the most bound up with the threat of violence, with the threat of racial violence, and, and in which they were the most vulnerable and could, and, you know, um, we're being made to be the most afraid, and so there's an outward signal to that, you know, sort of defiant stance. But they also talked about it in really um, internal terms too, about what it meant to stop fearing death, what it meant to uh, just as a as a, as an agent um, morally and psychologically. Um, to reconstruct yourself as a person who does not live in fear anymore. Um, And so they talked about it in this way that was very bound up with with a kind of idea that they didn't need to wait on anybody else to liberate them. They could liberate themselves. And so that's the kind of inward face that that I try to articulate, Um, this idea of what it means to act fearlessly and why that was meaningful to them um, in, in the context as they saw it.
1: Absolutely. And you also write about how they drew upon and how this relates both historically and theoretically to anti-colonial movements and theorizing, um, because ultimately what, what you want to suggest seeing like an activist, uh, and the civil rights movement, uh, was a decolonizing praxis and, and we should think of decolonizing praxis as, um, you know, a way to transform, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I think that, um, at least in my view, part of how this account develops um, with its particularly strong links to this idea of, um, of civil disobedience as a tool of, of self-emancipation is in conversation with anti-colonial movements, not just, uh, not just the Gandhian movement, not just, um, in India, but also through, uh, a sort of chain of linkages that, um, that I trace out that connects the U.S. to India, as well as Ghana and South Africa and, and activists in all of those contexts. Um, and I really see it as a sort of decades long shared conversation um, that is on the one hand, both about trying to understand what those contexts have in common. Um, so I, I talk and think about it as as their process of building a world that they're um, they are imaginatively creating a shared context that doesn't just naturally exist, but is the product of their intellectual and activist labor um, to construct these four places in particular as sharing something um, that, that wasn't self-evident. Um, so they do a lot of a lot of work to think about what does apartheid share with the British Raj, share with Jim Crow, um, share with British colonial domination in Ghana? Um, what links those practices? What links those, those forms of political domination? And part of the answer there is about the, the ways that fear and violence um, divide the world into the colonized and the colonizer and, and then structure deeply the habits of, of both sets of people, um, structure the entire political and social and psychological context. Yeah. So that's part of the work that they do and part of the linkages. And then on the other hand, it's also a conversation about what mass grassroots action can do about that, you know, how it can remake this particular kind of context, which is the, the kind of um, racial domination and economic exploitation that are at the heart of both Jim Crow and these colonial contexts.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it's not just history here, right? Like like this, this stuff is directly relevant to what's happening right now um and that was you know reading your book uh you know you're like of course drawn to uh the you know the George Floyd protests and before that the you know the black lives matter protests in ferguson i mean that was 2014 that was that was fairly considerable long time ago um you know and and it certainly it certainly seems to me not really a coincidence that as soon as you get formal equality in uh, the South, basically, ten years later, the uh, pr- uh, incarceration rate like like triples, uh, especially in the South. Um, but you know, one question I had, you know, sort of reading this fairly, you know, like 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 serious academic argument is like like what you know like how could we apply this sort of concretely? And one. The thought that struck me was, you know, in our previous episode uh, we we were talking about uh, an an argument that's been going on among like democratic politicians and uh, liberal activists wonks and so on, particularly involving a guy named David Shore, who was fired so, having something to do possibly, we don't know the details uh, after uh, getting in a Twitter argument in which he basically blamed the post Martin Luther King assassination riots in 68 on Nixon winning uh, the election that year, you know? And so it's like the, the the unruly black people got out of hand and that caused a backlash. And that meant Hubert Humphrey, you know, who was a a pretty solid civil rights record actually uh, lost just barely to, to Nixon. Um, but it strikes me that like your 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 book and your framework here provide a pretty compelling like architecture for why you know that sort of thing didn't necessarily like it it didn't have to go the way that it went. And then like you you like in the context of Martin Luther King, famously nonviolent, sort of almost like Christ like figure in American history, you know, being yeah, uh, uh, subject to this like incredible, you know, pressure campaign and then eventually murdered, you know, after getting so many, you know, millions of death threats who are probably nobody will even know how many, um, you know, that being the causal factor in the riots, like, like the murder of the most significant nonviolent activists to say, to like, to basically say, Hey, you nonviolent Black people are trying to sort of play by the rules and actually take the beating and go to jail, like the law says. You know, to sort of like do the the Christian thing. You know, this like led by literal pastor or, or reverend or, or whatever it was. Uh, we we killed that man, and now you know if like people just like explode and in, in in rage and burn down, you know, particular cities, then we're going to blame that on you again. Uh, and we're going to vote for the Republican and like the internal ideology of that sort of process, you know, like that could go, that they could go different ways. You know, you could say, you, you could, you could look at that in a lot of different like, like contexts. You could, I mean, you could say riots good. We like riots. So let's, let's burn down more cities. You could say riots bad, vote for Nixon to like exterminate the brutes. But then a n- number of intermediate positions to be like, Listen, you know, we all don't like uh we all like it when we can sort of walk down the street. But when we can walk down the street depends on uh you know, the presence of social justice. And when it doesn't exist, there will be these violent outbreaks especially when, you know, our sort of like saintly leader is just like mercilessly killed. And so this strikes me as like a pretty compelling like argument you're making that that is like quite relevant to modern politics and and even you know like uh, current arguments that are happening probably like in the White House right now about how do you approach Black Lives Matter and uh, you know the, the, the general movement towards you know like decarceration, police brutality etc cetera, etc cetera, right
1: so go off on Joe Biden Aaron just go off on Joe Biden <laughs> tell him what to do tell him what to do <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting because like the the backlash narrative, I mean, it it always comes up. And so and so that entire the the entire episode with with David Shore um, and the kinds of claims he was making, I I mean, like they're almost um, they're almost laughable in the sense that that looking back through the 1960s, um, it didn't it didn't really matter what the particular means being used by black activists were this is the kind of rhetoric that confronts mass black activism in the United States yeah really no matter what form it takes and so I, I find it humorous to suggest that um that that property destruction um, on the on the scale of the 1968 riots were really some kind of um, Silver bullet against the Democrats were really the clear red line that 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 kind of account suggests Um, it because that just doesn't you know, even looking at polling data throughout the 1960s, there is massive white rejection of basically every major civil rights movement campaign no matter how um, quote unquote well behaved they hated uh, no matter
0: Martin Luther King specifically yeah. before he died he was like 75% disapproval rating or something like
2: yeah, that yeah i mean it, yeah his his standing and his popularity had taken a huge dive after he came out against the the vietnam war but also more generally some you know his his rhetoric very subtly radicalized through, through the late sixties, but I don't even think that was, that was yeah. enough, you know? And I mean, one of the things that that we learn from the work of, of folks like Joe Lowndes or Vashla Weaver, um, you know, these people studying um, race and American political development over a longer duration. One of the things we learn from them is, is what we think of as um, the kind of Nixonian backlash or the white backlash of the 1960s—it isn't an immediate project that somehow only becomes a thing in in the mid 60s in in the face of riots. This is a long-term project for yeah. right-wing state capture um, and the capture of of other sub-federal institutions. You know, this is this is really a long-term project.
0: It starts um, in the 30s. As it starts the in New the Deal.
2: 30s. Yeah, and it takes a long time for them to to develop the kind of right balance between um, race baiting and dog whistles with without actually naming those things too specifically. That that precise mix takes a lot a long time, and it really comes to the fore in the late 1960s. But it's a mistake to think that that it is actually mostly a reaction to something that just happened. I just don't think that that's a plausible account and you know it's from you know within the the narrower window of the period that i write about in this book and from the activist perspective they were always super clear about the fact that um Big debates over activist means, over what kinds of tools and techniques and strategies they should be using, um, were almost always about something bigger. They were almost never just technical questions of whether this or that person agreed with this particular form of mobilization. Um, They were very clear that when white Americans or when politicians say, yes, of course we um, of course, we believe in racial justice. Of course, we believe in desegregation. We just wish that you would go about it a different way. Everybody from Martin Luther King on down was really clear that what that really meant is we're not really that invested in this project. And, and in yeah. fact, they're probably fairly against what it actually means, because when you think about the actually remaking, <laughs> rebuilding the world, remaking society, there are huge ramifications that touch on every single person and that really, really threaten the bases of power, political as well as economic. Um, and so yeah. it just, it was never credible to them that, that actually what was really happening was a technical debate over various people's comfort with, with different kinds of mobilization.
1: Right. Or, or that the goal was really about the next election as if electoral politics and the next election were really the focus and rather than like understanding how limited even that success might be in this overall project. Right. And that, I mean, to, to take us to today you know, I I think it's important when you hear the critiques from David Shore or whomever, that they are seeing like a white state, right? Like they are seeing like everything's basically fine. We just need to tweak a few things. Don't you care whether it's Joe Biden or or a Republican in office? That really matters. And they're totally missing how ambitious the project of these activists and the black radical tradition and and, and so forth is, right? And so like, maybe we could get into the techniques of disavowal because – People like Shore and others still want to just like appeal to like the white moderate or the white racist and just like try to persuade them and have them, you know, and they're what the opinion polls say about what they're willing to do and what they think about the police, Um basically be the limits of possibility, right? Uh, so if we get into these techniques of disavowal and, 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 and perhaps why that is such a uh, obstacle to change, uh, maybe then we can get to how forcing the better argument and what we can learn from uh, the civil rights movement uh, might apply to Black Lives Matter and other forms of activism today.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, I think it's interesting um, the, the way that you put it. I think you're absolutely right that that there's a, a way that the problem that um, that we were just talking about that I'm, and that I try to identify in the book through the techniques of disavowal um, can be linked to or like fed through um, the the kind of obsessive focus on electoral politics as as the only site of politics, the only meaningful site of politics, which does a few important things. I mean, it shortens time horizons. Um, it implies an investment in what we already have rather than what we could potentially build that might be different. Um, and so there are various assumptions that are built into the kind of obsessive worry about whether this or that protest is going to doom the Democrats' prospect in whatever happens to be the next election. Um, and as um, as Ryan was suggesting earlier, I mean, the other thing that I think it assumes um, is that there's that there aren't other options for dem- for elected Democrats to react to either, <laughs> that, that they either, you know, embrace or, um, or condemn, but the, those are the only two, two, uh, possibilities on offer, which, which also doesn't seem to be adequate or, or correct to me. And so I, I, do think, you know, this is what I talk about in, in the book to some extent as the techniques of disavowal, which was my way of trying to track the kind of, um, discursive contexts um, into which, uh, in which black activism occurred in the sixties. And so it's, it's the one part of the book where, um, though, though in that chapter, I I look quite closely at the, the sort of strategies of one particular protest, um, the, the Brooklyn core world's fair protest in 1964. um, that chapter is actually mostly focused on, um, the ways that, uh, the public and, and particularly politicians, uh, Reacted to and and responded to the civil rights movement, um, and what I argue is that um, that they tend to do so through various ways of disavowing it. And so, one form of that is what I referenced earlier, which is you know, of course, we agree with the <laughs> with your goals, but we don't agree with the means. Um, but there are other versions too. Um, you know, one thing that I th- I think happens um, is. Uh, what I call the the technique of disqualification, which is the various ways that politicians suggest that actually you know all of the bad ways that activists are misbehaving prove that that they should you know they've made their point we hear you we we see you and we hear you you should step aside now and leave the real work of racial justice to us the professionals you know usually stereotypically a bunch of of white dudes in congress um who are really who are going to take it from here and they know the the true method for securing racial justice while not violating anybody's rights, which, of course, is what they always accuse activists of doing. Or,
1: or of interrupting the sacred ritual of watching football uninterrupted without politics entering. <laughs> you know, without politics, as this the jets and the flag, you know, the, the, the flag waves and the jets fly over the stadium. Without politics, right? Yes, uh, yes, you precisely. Know, we, uh, so.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so that's, the, uh, that's another technique that I talk about, what, what I call uh, escalation. Um, a kind of rhetorical escalation, which is that any kind of disruption becomes either associated with or just named as violence. So any ways of um, interrupting kind of ordinary expectations. Um, disrupting people's expectations for you know their pleasant <laughs> day of watching football without having to think about politics, perhaps, or in you know in the case of the chapter, being able to go to to the World's Fair to have a you know fun day with your family without um, having to think about Jim Crow and racial injustice. This gets named um, very very quickly as a form of violence or violence itself, um, and so that Com- obviously. Commuting. Yes. The new trend the in commute. conservative yeah,
0: legislature is making it legal to run over protesters. That's not violence. That's self-defense.
2: Right. Exactly. So that the things that we might that, that seem much more clearly violent get renamed as something else. Self-defense, defense of the law, et cetera, um, and forms, particularly forms of state violence. But, you know, of course, also um, violence at the hands of white citizens becomes recoded um, as not violent at all, but, but somehow um, acceptable or, or even not seeable or not sayable.
1: Is it too much of a digression to ask you to talk a little bit about critical race theory? And because, because we're talking about how, uh, the law is used to shift norms about what is or isn't violence, what, you know, what, what is justifiable, what is legitimate and so forth. And that, that feeds into the disciplinary, uh, process for activists and so forth. So maybe you could, cause I mean, obviously the big blow up about critical race theory is, I think, still ongoing, um, with, with the right, uh, and even with some liberals, I guess. Um, so maybe you could you could offer your own kind of insights into how that fits in here.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, on the one level, you know, just like for everybody watching it unfold, it's sort of like puzzling, it's you know, it's sort of alarming. It's puzzling. Like what, what is really going on here? The first, the first time I noticed, I was it,
1: super impressed. My first grader is going to be learning critical <laughs> race theory. That's really advanced. I mean, I that's, know. that's impressive. What yeah. a, what a, what a prodigy all those kids. must. I know be.
2: they're yeah. going to know a lot about affirmative action law at the end of it. It's going to be really amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think that this is, um, this is part of, we can see it as, as a clear way in which, um, simply acknowledging something like racial domination is being re uh recoded as either like as manipulation um as as a type of violence so because a lot of you know the a big site of the moral panic is about children um and particularly like early early children's education um there's a way in which uh Pointing to racial domination, or or raising the question of what all of our responsibilities are to restructure society in a way that's equitable and just, even asking that question is now um, sort of being figured as distorting these these young <laughs> these young blonde children's sense yeah. of self, ability to be you know a whole person in the world. That it, like it, you know the rhetoric around it really is taking on um you know the the implication that this is a kind of violence that is being visited on young children racism um,
0: yeah it's racism and it's racism white itself
2: people. and so of course this is you know a familiar tool of the right that um that anything that uh tries to name or respond to racism of various kinds is actually racism simply because you brought race into view and so their you know their idea The idea of racism that they're trying to traffic in is is that it's anything that brings up race at all, which is, you know, sort of old familiar right wing color, like colorblind, um, colorblind rhetoric. Um, But I think along with that, um, you know, and in sort of in tandem with these more aggressive moves to do things like make it legal to run over protesters. Um, And in the wake of the just like incredible buildup of the carceral capacities of the state, um, it both is kind of old school, conservative, colorblind, um, uh, a a kind of familiar conservative colorblindness, but also it's something else. And I think something more dangerous because of the way that it it sort of sits within those those two other dynamics. Yeah.
0: This may be just a slight uh, digression here, but but uh, talking about that mindset specifically, you know, I, I, I wonder if you have uh, any thoughts on, f- for lack of a better word, um, I apologize if you mentioned this in the book and I missed it, but like seeing like a racist, you know, not seeing like a white liberal state builder, you know, who's sort of like semi-willfully blind but to like a genuine, genuinely racist shithead like William F. Buckley, you know, defending Jim Crow in 1957, Um, you know, because there's a, there's a kind of a double mindset there, like a, like a totally self-contradictory view of, of uh, how things go. Um, Or maybe there's like a sort of rhetoric and then a reality beneath it because it's like, we're freedom we're about you know we're we're about expanding the 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 freedom the lived liberty you know like in the tradition of the declaration of independence and all that type of thing against the liberal tyranny of the critical race theorists and you know Derrick bell the famous uh you know oppressor of americans for being like a lost lost caller from years ago <laughs> um well then at the same time literally doing like book burning type shit, you know, saying like, you're not allowed to say these words in the classroom. These books right here, these are banned. And, and like s- seemingly this, th- with no kind of, uh, uh, like sense of hypocrisy, I mean, a total shamelessness that's, that's, uh, visible in Trump, you might say, but, but also, you know, I think kind of stretching back to the, um, you know, to slavery, to Jim Crow and like the American conservative tradition, which is very clearly rooted in both of those things, which is to say that like, you know, us, the conservatives, we get to run everything. And if anyone else gets a say, that's a disgusting like imposition on our personal like capacity and our, our freedom and our liberty. You know, how dare you? How dare you? We will fight and die by the hundreds of thousands to preserve the ability to own other humans, because that's freedom. And like, like, you know, the sinisterness of it. I don't know. Like, I guess I don't really have a question here exactly. But like, if you could, (laughs)
2: like, kind of, yeah, no,
1: help Ryan understand. Help Ryan. yeah, Yeah, help me
0: with your superior brain to sort of under, like, understand, like. Like the way that the then and possibly the threat that the 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 this kind of manifest and kind of metastasizing conservative mindset yeah. poses to the United States as a you know putatively liberal, not really actually that liberal democracy, but could actually that could still get much worse than it currently is.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a a good question in a couple of senses. I mean, one, um, you know, so one thing that I thought about when I was finishing the book is that. Um, you know, books take forever to write, or at least academic ones do. <laughs> Non-academics write books much faster than us. Um, yeah,
0: I wrote mine real quick. And, <laughs> and here's the secret. It's not very good. You just have to have very low standards. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm sidetracking you again.
2: Yeah, no. So, I mean, one thing that I thought about is that, um, you know, you can you can see how I think some of the animating concerns of this book were really forged um, in the the Obama era, right? So yeah. part of my concern here is like emerged out of a context in which it was super common for people to talk about living in a post racial society. Um, and so being able to name the ways that something like liberal racism functions undercover was really important to me, um, as, you know, and it, it sort of doubled the context, you know, I saw it as operative in the context that I was writing about, but it was it also struck me as a contemporary problem. Um, and then, you know, the, the Trump era happened. And it's not that I lost that concern, but I did wonder, like, Okay, <laughs> what, what are the relevant contexts and, and what are the maybe slightly different concerns with respect to, um, with respect to racial domination that, that I would have now? And so one, one way that I thought about that in the book um, is that I think toward the end, I, I sort of even say parenthetically that really what I'm talking about is not exactly seeing like a white state, it's seeing like a white democracy, which is, you know, a context in which the the problem is the subterfuge, right? The problem is the self-delusion and um and subterfuge that comes with positioning yourself as if racial equality had already been more for the most part achieved um when that is in fact not at all what's happening. What kinds of violence um and what kinds of oppression does that create space for and enable um It may be a different concern, you know, the way that you put it, seeing like a racist. It may be a different concern if you are no longer really committed to that kind of if you're not committed to disavowal, like the techniques of disavowal are on offer always, but they're not the only discursive techniques. And, you know, the the techniques of sort of reactionary rejection or um, like the techniques of simply embracing racism are always there and on offer as well. Um, But I think where the two come together or where I'd like to say that it's still a big concern for me that the kinds of discursive moves that I pinpoint as as sort of operative within the U.S. is that I do think for the most part, um, even on the right today, a, a really common dynamic is the dressing up of racial domination in the language and the trappings of if not liberal democracy, exactly an American democratic tradition, a patriotic language, um, yeah. And I think I think that's quite it's quite deceiving. It's quite deceptive, and it's really hard to deal with um, because there's a familiar and and you know potentially or seemingly um, expansive or universal language about freedom or equality or democracy that's still there, while clearly the intent is to label some as worthy of domination and others as the true bearers of freedom um, and that's such a familiar figure from American history I mean that's that's sort of been a constant throughout American political development that I think we can see it in operation um, and that makes me it makes me think that it's always in play even when we're sort of dealing with the more bald version of racism that we're getting from the contemporary right um, and the way that you know part part of the Um, contemporary reformulation or part of the way that this is happening, I think on the right right now is the kind of multiculturalism of the far right that that we're seeing in like drips and drabs. It's, it's not a, you know, a a truly uh, fully white far right. Um, There's a kind of attempt to multiculturalize the, the presence of the right, the reality of the right to think about, um, to think about desire to dominate as more the price of the ticket than skin color, um, and and I think I think that that also enables perhaps a new a new version. It you know it might be distinct, but a, a new way of combining liberal democratic rhetorics or at least democratic rhetorics, perhaps no longer liberal, um, with with kind of classic racist intent.
1: Right. I mean, you have, uh, we had Matt Carp on a while back to talk about various things like the 1776 project and some other stuff. But, uh, I mean, you have Trump who, as racist as he was, says, I'm the least racist person there is, you know, adopting the mantle <laughs> okay. of anti-racism, right? And, uh, and you have, you know, the, the January 6th, um, riot and so forth, uh, very often cloaked in the sense of, uh, preserving the ideals of, of, of the country, right? And so, so there is this, this kind of, uh, seen like a light, a white liberal state, um, I think framework that even is superimposed upon, uh, even the most reactionary elements today. I think, I think that's, that's a weird, weird thing. Yeah. And
2: perhaps, I mean, Uh, we, we might still want to distinguish the way that the right formulates it versus, um, versus liberals, but I do think it, it, um, destroys the clean line between them that, that liberals would like to maintain, um, um, and, and it, it muddies the picture for sure. I think it puts everybody on more dangerous footing.
1: And they both reject, right. That radical change and, and they both seem to, um, you know, unite to condemn, um, you know, abolitionists and so forth. Right. So there seems to be more in common, uh, against radical activists, uh, between at least those, those two forces. I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, within the Trump era, there was some irony of, um, of Trump wanting to build a, a heinous, um, you know, violent concrete wall and, and liberals like Pelosi wanting a smart wall that was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> you know, the, like the, the yeah. will to surveil and to incarcerate amongst liberals is, you know, if that's just a teched up version <laughs> of what of right. what the Trumpian right has on offer, I'm really not sure what we're supposed to do with that.
0: I I think you know you you do what Ukrainian hackers would do with a smart wall. You would uh, infect it with malware and demand <laughs> ransom in Bitcoin to unlock the smart wall, so that you know the uh, you know Mexican berry pickers can come over to work for <laughs> this, like penny penurious wages.
1: <laughs> uh, well, well, Aaron, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah,
0: that's the only. That, those are the last questions I have. Anything from you?
1: I'd, I just wanted to end on, uh, if there's a, we like to end on hope here on Left Anchor. Is there, you know, to build a new world, Aaron, what do you, are you seeing in the, um, in the activism? Because we are, this is a time with a lot of activism, a lot of uh, strikes, a lot of, um, uh, you know, anti-racist movements. What in your scholarship and in your book are you seeing that's being drawn upon, uh, similarly to what you studied in the archives, uh, that has to, that has to do with decolonialization and, and a kind of praxis and theorizing that is more radical and transformative. What 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 hope could we leave our our audience with, and, and maybe things that people should learn more about?
2: Yeah, that's a terrific that's a terrific way to end. Uh, two things come to mind. I'm sure after we conclude, I'll think of a million more. But um, so I'll just I'll, I'll just point people toward two things. Um, one of which which I do talk a little bit, just a tiny bit, at the end of the book. Um, is just that you know one thing that I think was really evident to me about um, looking at and thinking about this generation of um, of racial justice activists, of of black activists in and around the movement for Black Lives, is um, a sort of um, they they are relatively unburdened by the weight of the civil rights past, but also very very, uh, well-versed in thinking about the creative ways they might use that as a legacy of the past. Um, and that I find hopeful because one of the sort of depressing things about activism can be, um, sometimes seeing, um, the ways that, um, that flexible creative ideas about, um, about political action become kind of stale repertoires that just seem to be repeated. You know, there's sort of demands to just rehearse these same forms of action. And then then sometimes I think um, those of us who mobilize give into that because it's it's genuinely hard to imagine what else we might do. Um, And so at least amongst the... um, the organizers that I was reading and thinking about at the time that I was finishing the book, there was a really um, productive, scholarly, and quite activist and creative way of playing with the past while while really thinking about like what are the contours of of the present now? Um, how is our context different? What? How do we want to be different? Um, how is it necessary to be different given the the kinds of um, the kinds of claims to universality or the kinds of claims to inclusion that we want to make? Um, And so that's an abstract. More concretely, um, there was recently, just recently published in Dissent, um, my friend Adam Catacho just published a piece reading the, um, reading some of the M4BL Movement for Black Lives documents about a new Black transnationalism, um, and about the way in which, um, it, you know, after after perhaps people writing for a time as if those transnational pro- projects were were dead or gone or a thing of the past, there were kind of new horizons for thinking about um something like a decolonizing praxis. Um you know we're in a different moment. It's 2021, it's not 1960, and so the kinds of connections to other movements and to other contexts will be different. Um, but really thinking about like the the global scope of the, um, the terrors that we face and what movements across these contexts might have to say to and for each other. Um, while also thinking about the U S as, um, as a truly global monster that, that needs, um, global uprising as, as a solution.
0: Yeah. Needs some, some discipline. (laughs) Honestly, we're, 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 we're polluting the globe with our with our companies, and with our racism, and with our, uh, well, our, our literal uh, greenhouse gases. Aaron Pineda, the, the book is called uh, Seeing Like an Activist, right?
1: That's correct. Um, civil Disobedience and the Civil Rights Movement Important something. Yeah,
0: you always got to have a subtitle. That's the rule now. You can't be doing marks and just having one word. You know, that's, that's the... Yeah, we don't get short titles a,
2: anymore.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll link to that in the, in the show notes and, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Aaron.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: We'll see you in the next episode, everyone.